Welcome to Ragbag. My name's Frank Burton. Bit of a step back in time this week, heading all the way back to a story I told in 2018 called The Envy Edition. It's a good one. Well worth revisiting. Stick around. Yeah, so I thought I'd do something with this episode because it's kind of an important one. As you probably know by now, Ragbag is going to be moving away from being a music show and into being a 100% storytelling show. So now's the time to pull out one of our best stories and check it over. The Envy edition. This was released, I think, before I started writing Everything I Am. And perhaps you could call it one of the key narrative building blocks that fed into the writing of that book. It's also one of the key stories within the ragbag world as a whole, so if you haven't heard it, listen up, you're going to enjoy it. It's one of my personal favourites. Originally, this was a two-parter. I've stuck it all into one this time. Also, I've made some adjustments. (laughs) Adjustments to the sound, yeah. In the early episodes of this show, I was still getting to grips with sound quality. I used to turn the mic volume up way too high. This was mostly because instead of using soft background music, I was talking over the top of some really loud music. So I sounded like I was barking into your ear in a club or something. There's a certain kind of charm to that sound, I suppose. I certainly thought I was being really clever at the time. Hey, instead of using background music, let's have some foreground music with my distorted voice barking over the top of it. Ugh. You live and learn, don't you? So this time, I've gone for a reasonable audio level with some soft classical music playing in the background. So imagine, if you will, rather than barking in your ear in a club, I'm telling you this story during a slow elevator ride. I said it. I said the American word. I said elevator instead of lift. Whatever. Here's the MV edition, the director's cut. When I was in infant school... Something happened one afternoon, which no one else seems to remember. In fact, I've never met another person who was primary school educated in the 1980s who recalls anything like this happening to them. But it did happen. I swear to you, man, the memory is so damned vivid. I could be there now, gazing in wonder at those golf clubs. I said it, yeah, gazing in wonder at those golf clubs. Let's define our terminology first, okay? This is, as you know, an international show. You'll all know the game I'm referring to, but different parts of the world call it different things. You may know it as miniature golf, or mini golf, or even putt-putt. Seriously, why would you call it that? What is wrong with you? Putt-putt. My God. Anyway, around my way, the game is universally known as crazy golf. So that's what I'm calling it. And it is crazy, isn't it? When you think about the game, what it involves. I'm not even using the word crazy in terms of its mental health connotation. I'm using it to highlight the surrealist element to the game. There's something incredibly dreamlike, something Lewis Carroll-esque about playing crazy golf. But that's a digression, because I'm not actually talking about playing crazy golf. I'm talking 
about not playing crazy golf. Because on that glorious summer's day, sometime towards the end of term, I arrived at school to discover that someone had erected a massive, stylish and elaborate crazy golf course on the sports field, covering the space of a whole children's football pitch. My tiny pulse quickened. I was hopping up and down in anticipation of the day me and my classmates had in store for us, only to be told during morning assembly that the junior kids would be spending the afternoon playing crazy golf, while the infant kids stayed inside doing their usual maths and English, all the while watching through the window at a vision of heaven. A heaven you're not allowed into because you're not old enough, because you're not considered competent enough to hit a golf ball straight. I could have totally done that, I told myself. At any rate, I'd be more skillful at it than some of those clueless junior kids. When I was in my 20s, I went to the supermarket with 10 quid to last me until next payday. And I was fine grabbing a basket of the bare essentials, rice, lentils, porridge oats, tomatoes. When I wandered into their music section and there, against all probability, was the new beta band record on vinyl, no less, in Tesco of all places. And it cost £9.99. And I wanted it. I really, really wanted it. And I was reminded of that day back at school because looking at an album cover without being able to listen to the music is very much like watching kids who are slightly older than you play crazy golf from a distance through a classroom window. In other words, you can only imagine what the experience is really like. When I was 14, I saw a model on the cover of a magazine in a newsagent, not nude or anything, tastefully done. And I knew that I wanted someone like that. It wasn't like all those nasty girls at my school. A person who had a brain as well as looks. But even then I knew I was projecting this idealised image onto the woman in the photograph. In actuality, maybe this model was a horrible person. And I felt the same way when I first met Heidi in a coffee shop. She was reading a Murakami novel with an iPod on the go at the same time. And it told me so much about her that she liked the same things as me. Even without hearing what it was she was listening to, I knew it was something with substance, whatever it was. And I wanted her. I really, really wanted her. And what happened with that Beta Band album in Tesco? I'll tell you what happened. I left the shop, I went to the bank and I signed up for a credit card and went back and bought the hell out of that record. I took it home and I ripped its sleeve off and I played it to death and it was worth every single one of those 999 pennies plus God knows how much interest. And what happened with that magazine, with that model on, that I liked the look of at the age of 14? I bought it, I used my bus fare and I walked home. 
It was a magazine for teenage girls. I made some super awkward comment at the counter, like, it's for my sister or something. And the guy at the till gave me a look like, I know your dad, you're an only child, and I know what you're doing with that. And what happened with Heidi in the coffee shop? I did something I wouldn't usually do in those circumstances. I started talking to her and she talked back. And all the while, there was a child inside me going, wait a second, I'm not supposed to be out here with the juniors. I've got a spelling test this afternoon, but someone's given me a club. And you know what? It looks like I can do this. I can hit a ball straight. I can hit a ball straight through the moving arms of a plastic windmill and I'm only seven years old. She was the girl that I'd imagined on the cover of that magazine. The girl who I'd invented in my head as my own private fantasy was sitting in front of me talking about Murakami and travelling to Tokyo and sipping on a black coffee in the same way that I would. But what happens when you get what you want? What happens when someone opens up the gates of heaven for you when it's not your time? You feel as though what you have is not really yours and your guest pass has a firm expiration date. So, I don't know the official linguistic distinction between envy and jealousy, right? I haven't bothered looking it up, but here's my understanding. Envy is what I had 30-something years ago as an infant, watching the junior kids, wishing I was one of them. And you know what happened, by the way, despite this not being an unattainable goal, I was bound to become one of them whether I wanted to or not I bided my time I waited I grew a little older and I waited until the following summer for the next crazy golf day but there wasn't one not that summer not any of the summers after that I heard someone's dad saying the company who ran the scheme had gone bust or something so it was a genuine once in a lifetime opportunity I'd missed out on I still had the opportunity to play crazy golf elsewhere, but I'm realising this now, looking back on it, it wasn't the game itself that I wanted so badly. It was the game under those specific set of circumstances. The game itself, take it or leave it. It's a little bit silly, truth be told. What I really wanted, really, really wanted, was to be the envy of other people. I wanted to be up there playing the game because I knew there'd have been a hundred sets of eyes on the other side of that window wishing they had what I had. Read into this what you will, but please don't be tempted to write this off as childishness because taken as a group, grown-ups aren't any better. They're a hundred times worse. Taken as a group, grown-ups have made envy into an art form. They've taken envy 
a deadly sin according to some, and made it the centre of everything, the driving force behind consumer culture. School is simply the place where we're first introduced to the concept. But once again, I'll ask the question, what happens when you get what you want? When the thing you most desire is handed to you on a plate and suddenly everyone wants what you've got, you're no longer envious, right? Are you happy? No, of course you're not happy. Why would you be? You've been taught your entire life that you're not entitled to your heart's desire. You're not supposed to have nice things. You're supposed to be the guy who envies. That's your role in a society which thrives on envy. What would happen if people just stopped buying unnecessary things just to make themselves feel better? Economic ruin for one thing. There are basic socio-political reasons why dreams are unobtainable. They're designed that way, but also they're constantly being dressed up to look obtainable. And it becomes a form of doublethink. Is that why love is such a confusing thing? Is it something to do with the way it's marketed through fairy tales and pop songs and, I don't know, Richard Curtis films? It's something that's made to look really, really simple. And that, my friends, is the dictionary definition Whenever you see a couple disappear off into their sunset of happy ever afters, it's purely and simply false advertising. So I got the girl. We got together. Me and Heidi. We were lovers. We moved in together. We had fun together. We shared some truly magical moments. And this is something the marketing guys get wrong as well. When you're being sold the concepts of love through the rom-coms and the fairy stories, they're very big on the sunset stuff. The all you need to do is get together and everything after that will be fine. They're so busy selling you that idea that they end up completely underselling the best bits about real love, the shared experiences like long car journeys where you literally just sit next to each other not saying anything for hours on end or repainting the living room, or eating together. That's actually the specific bit that gets unfairly edited out of any date scene in a restaurant. All you ever see is the dialogue. You never actually see the couple tucking into their food. And that's a real missed opportunity, because for me, the most meaningful part of any dinner date is the moment at which you stop talking and start eating. Because surely that's how you tell if this person is a match for you. Can you silently and comfortably share this thrice daily ritual? Why do you think restaurants are such a popular venue for first dates? It's not just because, you know, you're on safe territory if your potential suitor turns out to be a psychopath. I mean, there is that. But you're testing each other out on how well you eat together. Because, arguably, listeners, and please don't try to correct me if you think I'm wrong, culinary compatibility is more important than sexual compatibility. 
I could introduce you to many couples who no longer have sex. I'd struggle to find a couple who are still a couple but no longer eat together. You see, you know I'm right about this. I am. I'm right. I'm right about a lot of things, but this is the thing that I'm totally right about. I am. Anyway, as I was saying, I got the girl. And what I could have done was revel in the fact that I'd found myself the perfect woman. Revel in the fact that potentially every other man on the planet, you know, apart from gay men and the ones who had different interests and different aesthetic preferences to me, you know, not every other man on the planet wanted what I had, but some of them did. Surely somebody else must have wanted what I had. I knew these people existed, and the point is, I could have reveled in the fact that I had something they didn't. But I didn't feel that way. It didn't feel right to feel that way. What felt right was to constantly ask myself the question, why me? Why do I get to be with Heidi when there's other people out there with no one? And if these were the only internal questions I had to contend with, I'd have been fine, absolutely fine. I can live with a little self-doubt. I've been living with self-doubt since early childhood. Self-doubt and me get on like a house that's deliberately set itself on fire. We are inseparable. What I can't live with, and what I can't get on with at all, is jealousy. Yeah, I was jealous. As soon as Heidi skipped gleefully into my life, I was jealous of just about everyone. Because this, for me, is the distinction between envy and jealousy. Envy is being back in infant school, watching the older kids playing crazy golf and wanting to be them. Jealousy is being a grown-up and having nice things and not wanting other people to have my nice things. It's looking over my shoulder at every man who's glanced in my girlfriend's direction and instead of enjoying the buzz of, hey, she's mine and not yours, no, 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 no. Instead of that, it's like, why is he looking at her like that? And what if, what if he takes her from me? What if she goes off with that random stranger over there in the Superman t-shirt? And she doesn't even like superheroes. And she specifically thinks grown-ups who wear superhero t-shirts have what she likes to call serious mummy issues. Her opinion, don't shoot the messenger. Could that random stranger take Heidi off me and would she prefer him anyway because they do say opposites attract and maybe our problem is we were like too similar for our own good or am I just over analyzing everything why do I need to over analyze everything where does that come from is that from childhood or something is it because my parents genuinely never analyzed anything like they both just say the first thing that pops into their head whatever that happened to be. They were too similar, come to think of it. That's why their marriage failed in the end. I mean, there's still a question mark over what happened with my father's disappearance. I mean, maybe he just died accidentally and no one found the body. It's just more likely that he did a runner because he was bored. And that's what Heidi's going to do as well, isn't it? 
she's going to find someone else or disappear one afternoon after claiming she's popping to the shops because she's far too good for me. You know what, I was supposed to be telling you a story, wasn't I? But I've rambled on for a little while and we're approaching the end of the episode now. I've got some tunes to play and I haven't actually started telling you the story yet. This has just been a kind of a preface for what comes next. So let's make this a two-parter, yeah? And in part two, I'll stop the rambling. I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you how and why... Me and Heidi broke up. I just got a little bit sidetracked with this thing with the crazy golf. I could elaborate still further on this, you know. It definitely happened. Definitely did. I can't find any evidence of it happening. Not in other people's memories. Not online. There's no record of any sports education providers from that period in history who supplied any kind of crazy golf package to primary schools. I even, and I know this sounds slightly obsessive, but I do like to do my research, listeners. I even contacted the school. But, you know, all the staff from the time have left or retired by now, and the secretary was very helpful, but they don't have admin records dating that far back. They weren't even computerised back in the day. You're just going to have to take my word for it. If there's anything that's properly implausible about this story is that when I first met Heidi she was reading a book by my favourite author Haruki Murakami while listening to something on her iPod which I assumed was something that would equally match my own tastes but wouldn't that have been a little bit too perfect too coincidental even that two people should get together who have the exact same taste in everything Well, as I later discovered, she wasn't listening to something I would have liked. She was listening to the We Will Rock You soundtrack. But by the time I discovered that Heidi was a Queen fan, it was a little too late. I'd already made her into something she fundamentally wasn't. I'd made her into a fantasy woman who could do me no wrong, even when she really wasn't being very nice to me. I'm not bitter about this, by the way. I mean, she's the one who left. But I'm glad that she did. Being with her was making me pretty miserable. And clearly she wasn't happy either in the end. And I was the problem. She wasn't the problem. She was perfect. Except she wasn't perfect. She had a real mean streak. And even though I knew this about her, and even though I'd fallen victim to her temperamental vindictiveness on many occasions, I was too busy pretending she was perfect to realise what was really going on. I'll tell you what she said to me that day, and this sums it all up for me. The reason we were never going to work, and the reason I'm happy we're no longer together. She said... You know, love is just a word, right? I'll tell you why she said that. I had this thing about saying the words I love you and hearing the words said by someone else. Because no one had ever said it to me and I'd never said it to anyone else, 
Heidi, on the other hand, had heard it and said it many times before. She'd been romantically involved with people in the past. But more importantly, she was from a different kind of family to me. Her parents said those three magic words so casually and with such little effort. It was something she'd always taken for granted. And therefore, for Heidi, the act of saying I love you really wasn't all that special. They weren't magic words, which perhaps explains why she had a tendency to use the L word in what seemed to be inappropriate contexts. She said she loved me, but then she also said, I love tin spaghetti on toast, or I love the We Will Rock You soundtrack. And it's not that those sentences don't make sense, they're grammatically accurate and everything, but I know for a fact that tin spaghetti on toast wouldn't even feature in Heidi's top 10 favourite foods. She likes the taste of it and it reminds her of a happy, stable childhood, so maybe there's a connection there that could explain her use of the word. The We Will Rock You soundtrack is, you know, in my opinion, not a good album. But that's just the way I feel, and I probably would use the word love to describe a lot of the music that I like. So I can understand her use of the word love when it comes to music. The real problem I had with all of this was she was using the word love and it wasn't about me. Her affections were stolen from me, not by another person, but by an inanimate object, tin spaghetti on toast. I was jealous of tin spaghetti on toast. I was jealous of a collection of dodgy queen covers, because as I've said, I was the problem. She cottoned onto this one day, when she realised I was silently objecting to her claim in a petrol station that she loved barbecue beef flavoured hula hoops. She said it with a mouthful of them and I visibly pulled a face. Sorry, she said. What? Talking with my mouthful, bad habit. That's not the problem, I said as we climbed back into the car. Oh. She stopped munching. There's a problem. Well, not really a problem. It's just sometimes you... This is going to sound slightly odd. Sometimes you say you love something and, I don't know, maybe I feel it devalues things. Like when you say, I love you to me. How do I know... You're not just using the word love in the same way you describe your packet of crisps. Because, you know, I'd like to think I'm more important than a packet of crisps. You're right, she said. That does sound odd. Forget it, I said. What do you want me to do, she said. Do you want me to reassure you that you are more important than a packet of crisps? Do I have to do that every time I use the word love to describe something? Or, what you could do, I began, but stopped myself. What, she said. 
Forget it. No, go on. I'm open to suggestions. Okay, I said. I was just going to say, perhaps you could be a little less indiscriminate. Like, save the word love to describe something you're genuinely passionate about. Something that you have a real deep connection with. So, just use it to describe you. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I said. That would be great if you could do that for me. Well, I'm not going to do that for you, she said, because love is just a word. And perhaps you'd feel better about things if you understood that. Right, I said. So, when you say I love you, there's no real meaning behind it. It's just a word. What, it's just something that you're saying just to be nice or what? Oh, shut up, she said. I understand what's going on here, you know. You've got something inside you, something deeply insecure that makes you question everything. Like when good things happen to you and you feel like you don't deserve them because you were brought up to think of yourself that way. And it's that part of you that just can't grasp or can't believe that someone might actually be in love with you. So you look for the tiniest scrap of evidence to prove that you aren't really loved. That the person who says she loves you is just saying that. And the fact that she wants to spend all her free time in your company is all part of an elaborate con trick. And what was I supposed to say to that? She was totally right. She'd explained myself to me in a way I'd struggle to do myself. And so I said what I always said when I wanted to diffuse things between us. I said, I love you. And I added, I do know that you feel the same way, even though love is just a word. Just know that it'll always be more than just a word to me. We didn't talk the rest of the way home, which was okay in a way because she'd said what she wanted to say and I'd said what I wanted to say, but in another way it wasn't okay because she wasn't going to change. She didn't need to and I wasn't going to change, even though I definitely needed to. Not just for her, for me, for my own sanity. But then, then I had another thought. Later on, we were eating dinner. Two completely different meals, by the way, because we were two completely different people with different dietary requirements. And I just started talking, surprising myself as much as anyone else. I didn't even realise I'd been thinking about any of this stuff, but I must have been, unless the whole outburst just happened to occur to me on the spot. I'm... I'm unfulfilled, I said. That's the problem. I'm insecure because I don't have any of the things I really want and I don't have any of the things I really want because I don't really know what I want. That isn't quite what I was expecting you to say, said Heidi. Yeah, me too, I said. I thought I was going to be like, I'm really sorry about earlier and... I'm going to make an effort to change my behaviour or something, but I don't know. It seems better to lay the blame on forces beyond my control. 
And maybe I'm right as well. Maybe this is the case with, with all jealous people. We're insecure because the world hasn't met our expectations. And it's not our fault for having high expectations. It's the world's fault for failing to meet those expectations. Heidi didn't stop eating. She replied through a mouthful of chicken. I really don't know what you're talking about, Frank. I don't know if you're joking or what. I'm not joking, I know that much. Well, whatever. I'm getting tired of all this. We just seem to be having the same conversations all the time. I agree, let's have a different conversation. I disagree, she said. Let's not have a different conversation. Let's have the same conversation, but let's do it properly for a change. Let's get to the heart of the matter. You know what I really think about why you're jealous of everyone? Jealous of inanimate objects? You always like to suggest it's down to the fact your parents treated you like an inconvenience. I know that must have been hard, but I don't think it's anything to do with that. I think this can all be traced back to crazy golf. For a moment I thought she was mocking me, but she wasn't. I could see her point. Just hearing the words crazy golf sparked off an emotional reaction. Go on, I said. I think, she said, you learnt something about the world that day. You learned about wanting something you can't have. Up until that point, perhaps, you hadn't really had to deal with any of this kind of injustice because, despite their flaws, your parents actually gave you stuff. Maybe not affection or love or anything, but stuff. Loads and loads of stuff. I've seen your old Christmas photos. My God. So when you're faced with the sight of not one, but a hundred kids, all playing with stuff you're not allowed to touch, it changed your understanding of the world and your place within the world. You learned that life isn't fair sometimes. Everyone learns that at some point in their childhoods and most people come to terms with it. Some people never do and I think you're one of those people. You haven't accepted the fact that life isn't fair. What, you're saying I'm a spoilt brat, I said. I don't know, she said, but best not to put a label on it. Do you think Martin Luther King was a spoilt brat, I said, because he couldn't accept unfairness? I wouldn't compare you to Martin Luther King either, she said. You're a different person, you know. Your most painful childhood memory is the day you weren't allowed to play crazy golf. And I know it's your most painful childhood memory because you're always bringing it up. It's the only thing from your past that you've never really got over. You managed to get over everything else. Your father's disappearance, going to prison. All of that you've been fine with. But if anyone brings up the subject of crazy golf, it ruins your day. You just need to get over it. Okay, I said, well, how do I do that? I don't know, she said. I mean, I'm not even sure that the events as you described them actually took place. I mean, are, are you sure it wasn't a dream? 
Yes, I'm sure. I've never known anyone whose teachers took them out for a whole day playing crazy golf on some kind of portable equipment that had been set up on school premises. I mean, logistically, it would be easier to take a coachload of kids to an actual crazy golf centre. No wonder that company isn't operating anymore, whoever they were. I know it doesn't sound 100% plausible, I said, but come on, you're not calling me a liar, are you? No, I just think you're mistaken. I'm not. Imagine if you were, though. Imagine if I could prove it to you somehow. If I could get a time machine, we could go back and watch what really happened that day and all we managed to see is you, as a child, daydreaming. How would you feel then? Would you still feel like you're not good enough to have nice things? Or would you realise for the first time since you had that horrific daydream that sometimes unfairness is just a state of mind? Yeah, all well and good, I said, but, and I'm sorry to keep banging on about this, but it definitely happened. I'm as sure of that as I'm sure of anything. And the fact that you keep questioning it, that's just something I can't get past. I can't accept it. I need you to believe me. Hang on, she said. What? I've got it, the answer to your question. You asked me how I think you need to get over it, right? Yeah. You get over it by playing crazy golf. That's not going to work. I've played crazy golf subsequently and I still feel the same. But have you played crazy golf when you're not supposed to be playing crazy golf? How do you mean? I'll show you. And, uh, and she did, listeners. <laughs> she did. She did. She showed me. My God, she really did. She knew this place, this play centre for kids, which had a crazy golf bit on the outside. She took me there that night. We broke in. I'd never broken in anywhere before. And we played. Uh, we played into the night. We had so much fun. And not ironic fun not like hey we're grown-ups doing kids stuff fun i mean it was a genuine experience and i'll always be grateful to heidi for that because it was totally her idea and she did it for me she did it to fix me to make me into a better person and that's exactly what she did And then, and then she left. Yeah, she left. The following morning, she packed her things up and she never came back. I don't know where she went. I haven't seen her since that day. I was going to say I don't know why she left, but that's not true. It's pretty obvious why she left. I was a total nightmare. And she woke up that morning and she thought to herself... Did I really spend yesterday evening in a crazy golf centre that I'd broken into just so I could boost my boyfriend's lagging self-esteem? Was it worth it? 
So yeah. I was the bad guy. I hold my hand up to that. You know what, listeners? I used to be jealous. And I'm not anymore. I'm really not. I have very few possessions because I don't need stuff. I have very few friends because I don't need people all that much. And I don't have a girlfriend anymore because I don't need one. I've got a podcast. Think about that. I've got a podcast. And yes, I am a different person now. As you know. As you regular listeners will know. I'm Lazarus Newman. 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 Yeah, that ending probably doesn't make much sense out of context, I know. Remember Lazarus Newman, anyone? He was a short-lived experimental character. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, you will definitely like the first two books in the Ragbag series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It, which play around with some similar themes about misremembering stuff, human relationships, all that sort of thing. Have a look at my website, frankburton.co.uk. has all the details on it. Oh, by the way, um, I've got another podcast as well. It's called I Like The Sound. You'll like the sound of that as well. Check that out. I will see you very soon.